Radio. IRE Radio Podcast, IRE with you on your beat for 40 years. This week we're digging into police killings and going behind the investigations that follow the deaths of Michael Brown in Ferguson and Eric Garner in New York. I'm George Varney. On this episode, we'll hear how the Wall Street Journal dealt with missing reports of justifiable homicide by police. So you're telling me you literally don't know when you kill somebody as, a, as an agency? Then we'll narrow our focus to a state-level investigation. I talked to reporters from the New York Daily News who published a much-discussed statistic about the consequences, or lack thereof, for police who kill. Yeah, there have been 179 on-duty officer-involved deaths, and only three of those had resulted in a prosecution, and only one of those had actually resulted in a conviction. And for that officer who was uh, convicted, he wasn't sentenced to any time in prison. Coming up, IRE's Sean Shinneman, who talked to the two reporters on the Wall Street Journal investigation. In the aftermath of Ferguson, Rob Barry and Coulter Jones wanted to find out how many times a year police officers kill people. Which should be simple, except it isn't. Instead, as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, they found that more than 550 police killings over six years were missing from the FBI's tally. And those are just incidents within the agencies they checked out. We'll spend more time on the findings, and they're pretty big, but first I want to talk about the process. In the beginning, Rob and Coulter had a pretty straightforward objective. They weren't necessarily looking for case-by-case police wrongdoing, they just wanted to analyze accurate numbers. They learned that the FBI keeps a tally, and that it's the best data out there. The FBI gets its numbers from the states, who get it from individual law enforcement agencies, so boom, the FBI has the data. Simple. We started you know, delving into it, and and Coulter uh, did a bunch of analysis on on issues involving race and and, and totals and and change against the population and that sort of thing. The numbers revealed some weird stuff, like that police in California seem to kill at a much higher rate than the rest of the country. They took their analysis to academics, and that's when the edges of the story started to fray. Pretty much across the board, uh, we were told, well, you can't use the data like that. Uh, you, can't, you can't look at it like that. That's just not right. It's not going to work. Robin Coulter kept hearing from experts that the FBI's numbers were flawed, and eventually they had a choice. They could go ahead with their analysis of the federal numbers, including a little disclaimer explaining how some believe that issues in the reporting system make the stats less than reliable. Or they could ask, why? Why is the system so flawed? They went with the latter, and in the process took a different route toward answering that original question. How many times a year do police kill people? The question that seemed simple, but wasn't. At all. To get a grasp on the issue, Rob and Coulter contacted about 20 agencies to get a tally of how many times each of them had killed within the last six years. Then they compared those numbers to the FBI's. They started with agencies they suspected weren't reporting correctly, which, as Coulter explains, were easy to pick out. If you look at the data, you can look. An agency might have had five incidents two years in a row, and then suddenly there's nothing. So, like, either 
that means this agency has suddenly become really, you know, improved in that area of, of you know, justified homicides, um, or they're just not reporting. The next step was to flesh out the story. They wanted to make the sample more objective and bigger, so they selected the 110 largest police agencies in the country. Again, they were looking for the number of times cops killed over a six-year period from 2007 to 2012. They wanted the justified homicides only because those are the ones the FBI keeps track of. So through their correspondence with the departments, they weeded out the non-justified ones, which, it's worth noting, are extremely rare. What they found was pretty revealing. The 1,800-plus police killings that were reported by the responding agencies represented a 45% increase over the roughly 1,250 such killings in the FBI's numbers for those agencies. And remember California, the state that seemed to be killing people at a surprisingly high rate? It would have been misleading to report that finding at face value. It turns out California is really just one of the states reporting this information accurately, which means its numbers only appeared inflated. When the reporting was done, Robin Coulter had collected data from 105 of the 110 agencies they looked into. They'd been aiming for something just south of 100, so the end total came as welcome surprise. But the process took some serious work. So, you know, you're going to have percentage of people who are already dealing with it in a transparent way where it's available, a certain percentage that are going to be really easy to work with and get you the information as quickly as possible, and then that mix of people that want to give you all the litany of excuses, whether it's, it's going to cost you $10,000 to go through our data or that doesn't exist, and then you have to follow up with a simple, like, so you're telling me you literally don't know when you kill somebody as, a, as an agency? A lot of agencies said they could provide the number, but they wanted to know why the Wall Street Journal wanted it. So what do you tell a public information officer at an agency on the brink of handing over information you need, but who could just as easily turn around and make you jump through hoops? It depended on the agency. I mean, what I, what I told every agency was basically we want the information because we want the information. You know, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we want it. If you don't want to give it to us, please tell us on the record why not. But as Rob points out, in this case, the true answer to the question, why do you want this information, wasn't as intimidating as the agencies might have assumed, which soothed some PIOs. Some agencies... Uh, you know, they just wanted to talk about it. And so I told them basically what we were doing, which is that we'd asked for this information from a lot of agencies. We hadn't singled them out. Uh, you know, we, had, we were coming to them because they were one of the larger agencies in the country. And I think knowing that this was in a broader context made a lot of agencies feel better. The story hit in early December with an interactive online data set, which actually isn't behind the journal's paywall, and has already made an impact. The Death in Custody Reporting Act of 2013, which had been passed by the House, was passed by the Senate, too, and then signed into law by President Obama on December 18th. The act mandates that the Department of Justice tracks the deaths of those who die in police custody or during arrests and finds states that don't provide the info. There's no question that it will include a lot of the cases that, that, that we looked at, though there is some question as to whether or not every case falls under its definition. New York had not been getting any data to the FBI, but they've said they'll start doing so this year. Florida, another black hole, hinted it would do the same. Keep your eyes peeled for a behind-the-story post on this piece at ire.org slash podcast. I'll dive further into the reporting and provide Robin Coulter's reasoning for selecting as a lead to their story Albert Germain Payton, a 24-year-old killed by police in 2012 whose death doesn't appear in the FBI's numbers.
In early December 2014, days after a Staten Island grand jury decided not to indict the officer involved in the chokehold death of Eric Garner, the New York Daily News published a sweeping story analyzing officer-involved deaths from 1999 until November 2014. While the verdict prompted outrage at the time, it wasn't surprising given the city's history. In 179 fatalities involving on-duty NYPD cops in 15 years, only three cases led to indictments and just one conviction. That's the Daily News headline that got a city talking. The odds of indictment weren't widely known until the story was published, but there had long been a general feeling that cops got off easy in New York courts while the general public did not. You might have heard this phrase, making the rounds. You can indict a ham sandwich, but not, you know, a police officer. That was Sarah Riley, a data projects editor at the New York Daily News. I talked to her and two of her colleagues, who were part of a five-person team working on the story. I'm Nolan Hicks. I'm a projects reporter. And I'm Dare Gregorian, and I'm a uh, courts reporter at the Daily News. The story started and almost ended as a statistic from the Prison Reform Organizing Project. For years, interns at the organization had been compiling data on people killed by police in New York. The project's executive director had been considering releasing the data in July following Eric Garner's death. His idea was to put out a a press release that gave the racial breakdown of the people killed uh, by NYPD officers. I think it was something by his count like 85 percent black and Hispanic. The director wanted to send this information out in a press release, but Sarah had an idea to take the story deeper. You know, although I think that stat would definitely you know, get retweeted and, and, you know, picked up, I thought it would be a more impactful story if we also looked at not just the death, but the repercussion or lack of repercussion to the police officers. In October, Sarah convinced the group to let the Daily News publish that data along with more context. Luckily, there was another organization keeping track of police-related deaths, the Stolen Lives Project. This additional source was crucial because, not surprisingly, the NYPD wasn't forthcoming with details about officer-involved shootings. Here's Dare. Yeah, the NYPD is very close-lipped about the departmental proceedings and whether an officer has complaints against them, what happened to those complaints, uh, what kind of action was taken against an officer in, in some of these instances. Those were just some of the many facts the team had to gather from outside the police department. Then the paper had to verify the data. For this, they turned to the NYPD's annual firearm discharge reports. The documents didn't contain names, but they did have the dates of when an officer fired a weapon. Still, there was an important caveat. Because the scope of the report was limited to firearms, not all police-involved deaths were recorded. So Eric Garner's death, for example, would not be in that report um, because he was killed uh, in a chokehold, not by a firearm. So with information from two organizations, the team set out verifying and gathering background information on each case. Here's Nolan and Sarah. You know, we took these two lists, we sort of compiled them together, and then we used a variety of different sources, as Sarah said, to just make sure that what we were publishing was accurate. And one of those lists had like 265 names mm-hmm. on it, and I think we only ended up including 222 or 223 people our, in our final analysis. That's a both... 233. 233. So, um, you know, there, there was a lot of a lot of legwork and a lot of uh, overtime of course, uh, put in getting this done. Time-consuming search yeah. that you guys are all forgetting is going through all the court Documents. records. Yeah. <laughs> For, um, that, was, that was definitely the most time-consuming.
We should mention here that there were two other reporters on the project who I didn't get a chance to talk to. One of them is John Marzulli, whose years as a court reporter proved invaluable as the team went back through a decade and a half of court records. The story was originally intended to be a long-term project. All the reporters had daily beats that demanded attention and no one was on the story full-time. The grand jury decision in the Garner case changed that. See, the Garner decision came down Wednesday. We got word Tuesday, so starting sort of Tuesday night, um, through publishing this thing, uh, it went live. Monday? Really, it, basically, we went from Tuesday night to Sunday, basically working. Uh, nonstop. Yeah, nonstop on this. We were um, literally at the office until 3.30. Two thirty, I think it was. Yeah, we took a cab home. Yeah, it was. It was insane. Um, Bit of a mad dash at the end. But the impact the discussion the story started made the scramble worthwhile. You know that number that that the entire city was talking about for a week. You know there had been 179 office, you know, on-duty officer-involved deaths, and only three of those had resulted in a prosecution, and only one of those had actually resulted in a conviction. And for that officer who was uh, convicted. Uh, he wasn't uh, sentenced to any, uh, to any time in prison. The Daily News didn't want to neglect both sides of the story, and one of the reporters on the project, Tom Tracy, was able to get comments from police unions. I'm glad that they commented because um, there are a lot of officers that, uh, you know, are, are risking their lives every day, and a lot of these incidences were incidences where the officer was being shot at or where the public was being shot at or where someone was being actively stabbed, you know, and these officers saved a life. So... Um, you know, we, we, we needed that in the story, and, and, uh, and from the, I'm glad he was successful. The paper also sent the NYPD its data days before publishing. I asked Sarah what kind of response they got back, whether it was a thank you or a challenge or what. They, like, never respond to us. It's crazy. The Daily News team continues to sift through the data and plans to publish more reports on police-related killings. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes on both our SoundCloud page and on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. We also have a new website where you can browse episodes by date, speaker, and theme. We've collected all the old episode notes so you never have to search for them. Find it all at ire.org podcast. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, our inbox is always open. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and she can be reached at web at ire.org, or you can reach me at George V, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-V, at ire.org. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Varney. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that over. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.